I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the 115th episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I have a good famous day for the podcast, rather than a famous day where something bad happened. I also have three fun additional history stories from the same day for you, and of course I'll end with an advertisement printed in newspapers on the famous day. Today's famous day is one from more than 135 years ago, October 28, 1886 and I'm taking our famous headline from the Brooklyn Union. It says, Unveiled, the Statue of Liberty at Bedloe's Island. This Statue of Liberty has been a symbol of the United States since it was dedicated on a foggy, cold, and rainy October day back in 1886. The weather didn't stop the thousands of people that came out to witness the parade and dedication, though. They watched from the island itself, and they watched from the bridges and from places all over town where they could catch a glimpse of the new lady watching over the shore. The Statue of Liberty began as a group project, if you will, between the United States and France. Edouard de Laboulay came up with the idea to symbolize the friendship of the two countries. And then Frederick Auguste Bartholdi, who was a French sculptor, made the statue out of sheets of copper. And Alexandre Gustave Eiffel, who designed the namesake Eiffel Tower, designed the interior still framework of the statue. Originally, the plan was to have the statue finished in time for the country's centennial celebration, which would have been 1876. But it didn't get done in time. When the statue was completed, it was given to the United States, who put it on top of a pedestal that the U.S. paid for on a small island in New York Bay. That island is now called Liberty Island. The statue and pedestal together reach 305 feet into the air. On October 28, 1886, today's episode date, the statue was dedicated by President Grover Cleveland. For the 12 million immigrants that passed through Ellis Island when they arrived in the United States, the nearby Statue of Liberty became a symbol of welcome, freedom, and new beginnings as ship after ship passed within sight of it. In 1883, Emma Lazarus wrote a poem called The New Colossus, and that poem is engraved on a plaque on the pedestal of the statue. I'm sure you'll recognize this famous passage from that poem. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The Statue of Liberty is truly a symbol of this country. But what else was being reported on the day the ultimate symbol of this country was unveiled? Let's open some newspapers and find out. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a story from the Lawrence Mail out of Bedford, Indiana. This headline from October 28, 1886 says, One Life Taken. Now, from the headline, you can probably guess that it's a murder story. 
and it is, but it's a lot more than that. 1886 was a huge year when it came to worker strikes. In the 25 years starting in 1881 and going into the first years of the 1900s, there were 37,000 worker strikes. People were upset and they were demanding fair wages and clean working environments and good treatment. Earlier in 1886, in May, the infamous Haymarket Affair, or the Haymarket Riot, occurred in Chicago. And I'm not going to go into detail on that incident because, honestly, it's on my list of subjects to cover as a famous day. But it involved a strike, a bomb, and many deaths and injuries. Anyway, with the Haymarket incident fresh on everyone's minds, people of Chicago were understandably nervous when another strike happened in the town of Lake which I believe was a suburb of Chicago. This strike was at the stockyards, where many packing companies were located. One day, a notice was posted on the wall of one of those packing companies that angered all of the workers. It said that starting the coming Monday, work days would change from 8-hour days to 10-hour days. Everyone was extremely upset, and a committee of around 1,500 men took the notice and went to the foreman of the packing company, demanding that the notice be taken down immediately. The foreman refused. So, in their anger, the men went on strike and left the building. Those men were soon joined by around 800 men from a neighboring packing facility. With that big of a number, the men realized they had a little power. So they went down to yet another factory and enticed the men there to leave their posts and joined them in the strike. Eventually, the number of people on strike reached 20,000. That's a lot of workers not working. The factories couldn't just ignore the problem and hope it would go away. Something had to be done. At first, everything was peaceful and involved a lot of excitement, but no trouble. The group wasn't destroying property or anything like that. And according to one source, their goal was to end the incident without any injuries or deaths and they almost made it, but not quite. With that many people on strike, there's bound to be some problems. The men from one of the factories started rioting, and a few people were hurt. The entire police force went down to the stockyards to try to keep order. They also brought in 153 Pinkerton men to work as security guards. The Pinkerton men arrived on railroad cars and were greeted by screams and yells from the cars. In addition to whatever weapons the cops were carrying, the Pinkerton men all had rifles. That's a lot of people walking around carrying guns in an angry state. The men on strike were convinced that the packing plants were purposely making the working conditions bad so that they could fire everyone and then hire other men to take their places who were willing to work 10 hours a day in poor conditions. After all, there were a lot of men out of work at the time. But when the workers went on strike, many of them walked out with their equipment in their hands. That caused one problem. Another problem was all the cattle waiting to be slaughtered. There were thousands of cows. With everyone on strike, the companies had to keep feeding them, and that caused more expense for them. It was noted in at least one article that of the 20,000 men on strike, many of them had quit just because they couldn't do their jobs without the other men there. Well, fast forward a few days, and sure enough, just as the strikers had predicted, 
the packing houses started hiring more men and bringing in more pigs and livestock in preparation of starting up again. This made the strikers mad, and they started roughing up the ones trying to get to the factories to make deliveries or to work. Well, there was a group of people that those on strike hated almost more than the new men taking over their jobs at the factories. They hated the Pinkerton men that were still hanging around. All of the businesses in town started boycotting the Pinkerton men and wouldn't sell them clothing or tobacco or liquor because they were afraid that if they did, the strikers would destroy their businesses. Eventually, the strike came to an end and the new men who had been hired while the old men were striking were forced to resign. They were loaded up on train cars, along with the Pinkerton men, to be taken out of town. Well, the train had to stop for a short time when it got blocked by a freight train, and a group of about 200 men were standing around when they saw who was on the train. They started catcalling and jeering at the Pinkerton men, and the men outside the train said there wasn't any actual violence, But the men on the train told a different tale, and they said that the crowd was throwing rocks at them. Before long, the incident escalated, and one of the Pinkerton men aimed his rifle outside the window of the train and fired. It was an immediate scene of chaos as people returned fire from both the train and the crowd, and as people ran to find shelter. One man, Terrence Begley, was killed. He hadn't even been involved in the incident and just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, walking his horse down the street, and he got hit by a stray bullet. The Pinkerton men kept firing from the train as it started to move again, firing into multiple packing houses as it drove through town. The police decided the best way to deal with the situation was to let the train keep moving until it was far enough away from the situation that the shooting would stop. When the train was finally stopped, the men were pulled off by policemen and gathered in a room together where they were questioned by William Pinkerton himself. They were questioned as to who fired the weapons, and they were told to come forward like men and confess to what they did. A few men did go forward, and their guns were checked for evidence that they'd recently been fired. Fast forward a few months, and a grand jury determined that there wasn't enough evidence to charge the men with murder of Terence Bagley, and the incident from October of 1886 was mostly forgotten to history. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Daily Times out of New Philadelphia, Ohio. This headline is very simple. In fact, it's just a name. But some of you, upon hearing it, will know exactly who this person was. And since today marks the last day of Black History Month, maybe it's kind of fitting that this person popped up in the news the same day the Statue of Liberty was dedicated, so I can tell you his story. The headline says, Blind Tom. And it was discussing a court case concerning him. So let me tell you who he was in case you don't know. Blind Tom was born Thomas Green Wiggins on May 25, 1849, on a plantation in Georgia. Both his mother and his father, Mingo and Charity Wiggins, were enslaved. Now, usually when enslaved individuals had kids, those kids were put to work on the plantation, 
or in the household of the person who owned them as soon as they were old enough to be useful. In Tom's case, working on the plantation wasn't something he could easily do. He was born blind, and even though it would be nearly a hundred years until a name for his condition came along, it's believed in modern times that Tom also had autism. When Tom was just a baby, his parents were sold to a man named General James Bethune. General Bethune was a lawyer and also a newspaper editor. His newspaper was the first paper in the South to encourage secession before the start of the Civil War. That probably gives you a pretty good idea about the man. Since he couldn't see to work, Tom was left alone on the plantation to run around and do as he pleased. From a very young age, there was something that fascinated Tom about General Bethune's home. It was the family's piano. Tom heard the daughters of the household playing and was fascinated by the instrument. By the time Tom was just four years old, he was already learning to play the piano just by listening. Remember, he was blind and couldn't read any music. Then when he was just five years old, Tom wrote his first song on the piano. It imitated the sound of the rain on a tin roof. Pretty soon, General Bethune started noticing Tom's unique abilities and decided since he wasn't of any use to Tom as a plantation worker, he might as well move Tom into the main house so that he could spend his time playing the piano. It was said that Tom would sometimes spend up to 12 hours a day practicing. He loved having the sound around him, and if he couldn't be playing the piano, he would try to bang on pots and pans. One of the things that set Tom apart from others, both in his musical life and in everyday life, was his ability to memorize things. It was said that he could memorize a piece of music after just hearing it one time. And it's believed that in his lifetime, he memorized, and more importantly, remembered, at least 7,000 different pieces of music. As a pianist and violinist myself, that number is staggering. Memorization isn't my strong suit, and I can't even fathom the talent and ability it would take to do something like that. But Tom's memorization skills weren't just with music. It was said that he could listen to a conversation for 10 minutes and then repeat back word for word every single thing that was spoken. Sadly, this skill didn't translate into him being able to carry on a conversation about himself. He struggled to voice his own ideas and wants and needs and mostly used grunts and gestures to communicate. When he did speak, he referred to himself in the third person. So, how was it that Tom was able to learn that many songs? It wasn't like he could turn on the radio or put in a CD or pull out some sheet music from the piano bench, right? Well, General Bethune would hire professional pianists to come and play music for Tom. And since he often only had to hear a song once, he was immediately able to turn around and play the song exactly like the professional. Now, the extra attention that Tom was getting from General Bethune by living in the big house and getting to play all day and having musicians brought in just for him might make it seem like the General's family really cared for Tom and cared about his well-being. But that wasn't the case. There was a motive behind it all. Fast forward just a couple of years to when Tom was eight, and General Bethune decided he was ready to start performing in public. 
he would send Tom out on concert tours around the United States, and Tom would perform in venues all over. Sometimes he would give four concerts in one day. Since this was before the Civil War started, General Bethune got to keep all of the proceeds from the concerts. Tom was his key to becoming a rich man. Tom's popularity grew and grew until he became one of the most well-known pianists of his era, but he didn't get the money that came with this success. Instead, General Bethune became rich when Tom made hundreds of thousands of dollars for him, the equivalent of millions of dollars in today's money. One of the saddest parts of Tom's story to me is that even though he was immensely talented, he almost always performed as more of a circus-type act than in a fancy concert hall. Although in 1860, Tom became the first Black performer to perform at the White House when he played for President James Buchanan. At Tom's concerts, he would play popular songs, both those he wrote and those that others wrote, and he would do voice impressions too. One man once wrote that, quote, one of his most remarkable feats was the performance of three pieces of music at once. He played Fisher's Hornpipe with one hand and Yankee Doodle with the other and sang Dixie all at once. He also played a piece with his back to the piano and his hands inverted. Not surprisingly, some people were convinced that the performances were some sort of trick and that Tom wasn't really doing all those things. So, Tom would have people from the audience come up and play new music he'd never heard, or maybe even make something up on the spot, and then he would repeat the tune exactly like they had played it. A lot of people wrote about going to see Tom perform, including Willa Cather, John Steinbeck, and Mark Twain, just to name a few. Mark Twain said that he got to take a train ride with Tom once, and Tom imitated exactly the sound of the train during the entire ride. Well, after the Civil War came along and all enslaved people gained their freedom, the government decided to step in and appoint General Bethune as Tom's official guardian. Even though the war was over, Tom's circumstances didn't change at all, and he continued to travel around, making money for Bethune. Then, guardianship was eventually passed to General Bethune's son, and he began taking Tom around the country and world to perform. But when Bethune Jr. was killed in an accident, custody once again went back to General Bethune. In newspapers of the day, Tom was always referred to as Blind Tom and other not-so-nice terms such as lunatic, freak, moron, and idiot. It was awful. Since he was never allowed to take care of himself, Tom was sometimes referred to as the last American slave. Fast forward to 1886 in our newspaper article, and Tom's mother, Charity, was fighting to get custody of her son. She'd had 12 kids while she was still enslaved, but since slaves weren't officially allowed to get married, they were all considered to be born out of wedlock, and that complicated custody back then. She was fighting to get control of Tom, and ultimately the money he was making. From everything I read, it was never clear if Charity was fighting for Tom because he was hers and she loved him, or if she just wanted to get her hands on the money. I'd like to hope it was the former, but Charity lost the custody case, and it's unclear who actually ended up with Tom. 
One source said that he married his landlady at one point, and then she got divorced and remarried someone else, but eventually she won custody of Tom and his money. Another source said it was General Bithune's daughter-in-law who won custody of Tom. To me, it doesn't really matter, though. What matters is that Tom was never allowed to live with his family, and he was never allowed to live on his own, and he was never allowed to have access to the hundreds of thousands of dollars that he made. As a side note of sorts, back in August of last year, I did an episode on the Johnstown Flood in Pennsylvania back in 1889. Tom was in Pennsylvania at the time, and a rumor went around and spread pretty quickly that Tom was one of the victims of the flood. The rumor went around and around for years, and people were convinced that someone else was performing and pretending to be him after that. But, in reality, in 1908, Tom passed away for real. He had a stroke and was buried in an unmarked grave. For all the money he made his guardians, they didn't even give him a proper burial. Eventually, a marker was placed at his grave, and there have been books and documentaries made about his life, and he's finally getting some of the recognition that he deserves. One of Tom's most famous musical pieces that he composed is called The Battle of Manassas. It's believed that he wrote it during the Civil War, after hearing General Bethune's son describe the battle. The piece imitates the sound of the battle. You can hear drumming and marching and gunshots, and when the Confederates enter the picture, you hear Dixie, and when the North enters the picture, you hear Yankee Doodle. It's a very interesting and unique piece of music, and I'll post a link to someone performing it in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group, so you can hear it for yourself. For my last additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Peru Times out of Peru, Kansas. Many of the stories on the front page of this particular newspaper had happened a few days earlier. It took some time to decide what to talk about. I only looked at the front page, and there were multiple ideas. For example, a passenger train and a freight train had crashed into each other in Detroit, completely destroying both of the engines, damaging the tracks, and causing severe burns and injuries for quite a few people. Then there was the story of an earthquake that shook South Carolina and Georgia, and at least one aftershock was felt all the way up in Washington, D.C. There was also a story of a couple in New York who were found in their bed with their four-year-old child lying between them. The couple's throats had been slit, and there was no indication of what had actually happened in their home. I assume it was a murder-suicide, but that part wasn't clear. Nor was it clear of whether or not the child was harmed. Another article on that front page told of a woman in Louisville, Kentucky, who died after her dress caught fire from touching a fire grate, and she was burned to death. Her sister tried to put out the fire and was severely burned too. Then there was a story of an 80-year-old man whose body was found in a ravine in Missouri. His throat had been slit, and he had two bullet holes in his head. His murder was believed to be a robbery. Also in Missouri, there was a report of a bar fight turning deadly when one man beat another man with a club until he died. There was also a story of a man killing his brother because he thought the brother was having an affair with his wife. The stories went on and on and on. 
So I decided to pick just one of the front page stories and give you more detail on it. The headline says, Fowley murdered. In this case, the body of a man was found in a ravine about 12 miles east of Independence, Missouri. It was clear that the man had been murdered. A farmer found the man's body about 30 feet away from a little bridge that crossed over the ravine. The body was in a clump of bushes, and according to the authorities, it was obvious that someone had put some effort into trying to conceal the body. All of the man's clothing was missing, except his socks, and one sleeve of his undershirt, which apparently had literally been torn from his body. The farmer who found the body recruited another farmer who lived nearby and sent him to Independence to bring back the coroner. Up to that point, nobody knew who the deceased man was. But as soon as the coroner got there, the mystery was solved, because the coroner knew him. His name was John Van Zandt. And in case you're wondering, as far as I know, he wasn't related to the John Van Zandt that sings with Leonard Skinner. Anyway, the coroner determined that John had been killed by a blow to the head. As they continued to investigate, they found bloodstains on the bridge above the place where the body had been hidden. And directly under that spot, they found blood on the leaves and debris in the ravine. Despite the murderer's attempt to cover up the crime, there was also a trail of blood leading right to the hiding spot. The authorities decided John had been killed on the road near the bridge and then tossed over the side. It was believed that the body had been there for two or three days before the farmer found it. Now, what confused the coroner the most were the very clear footprints that led up to the body. You see, the footprints very obviously belonged to a woman. But was the woman an accomplice, or had she managed to kill a grown man, toss him over the side of a bridge, and then drag his body to a hiding place? Well, as they continued to look around the site of the crime, the investigators found an old beat-up set of clothing. In one of the pockets, they found a corn sheller and one buckskin glove. Not much to go on. But they did think that the murderer stole John Van Zandt's clothing, since he'd last been seen wearing a new suit of clothing that was worth at least $50. As soon as people in the area heard about the murder, they came to one of two conclusions. First, people thought it was a robbery gone wrong, and that was it. After all, in the weeks prior to the murder, John had been going around town talking about how much money he was making, and how many horses he owned, and stuff like that. Robbery made sense. The second thing people thought was that John Van Zandt was killed out of revenge. And that's where the case gets a little more interesting. John Van Zandt was a killer himself. In the ultimate sign of Wild West days, three years earlier, in 1883, John killed a man named Porter Armstrong when they got in a fight over a game of cards. Apparently, that stuff doesn't just happen in old Western movies. It happened in real life. For that murder, John went to trial, was found guilty, and sentenced to hang. Well, John didn't like the idea of hanging and appealed the decision, and it went to the Supreme Court. I assume it was the Supreme Court of the state of Missouri, but it doesn't actually say. Anyway, his sentence was reduced to just six months in jail. That was quite a turnaround. 
So fast forward a couple of days after the body was found, and two men are arrested in connection with John's murder. No explanation as to how the authorities came to their conclusion was given. But I think one of the men might have been a former employer. Then, just a few days later, one of those men was set free after proving without a doubt that he'd been out of town at the time of the murder. The other man supposedly made a confession, but what he said didn't make sense, and the authorities were still trying to untangle everything that happened. And that was pretty much the last thing I could find about either of those men in the newspapers. A few more papers picked up the story in November, but I couldn't find a conclusion. I don't know if Frank Basin was convicted or sentenced or set free. And most of all, I still don't know if the murder was a robbery or revenge. It seemed that murder was so rampant in that area during that time and in that place that nobody cared enough to follow up with the newspapers. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the News Journal out of Wilmington, Delaware, printed on the 28th of October, 1886. And I have to say that of all the advertisements I've featured on this podcast, there have been very few that have left me baffled. Today, I'm baffled. This advertisement is found on the last page of the newspaper, and it's for a store called S.H. Stotts. Not only does the store advertise that they have a large assortment of gloves for sale, but they also have a variety of scarlet medicated underwear for men, women, and children. Yes, friends, medicated underwear. I tried to look up what the use of medicated underwear was back in the 1800s, but I didn't have a lot of success. I found other advertisements for it, but only one gave any insight and said that physicians recommended it for people suffering from rheumatism. Huh. Friends, thanks for joining me for today's dedicating murderous musical episode. Join me this Thursday for a mini-episode where I will be joined by a special guest who has been begging me to cover a certain subject. I finally gave in. Talk to you later.